had a chance to take Anna, my little girl. You guys know her. She's, if you're male, she's punched you several times. Um, hopefully just if you're male. That's our rule. Um, but uh, I had the chance to bring Anna to her speech therapy. And her speech therapy on Wednesdays is in a pool. And I was like, get out. Why are you doing speech in a pool? Like, that sounds like rich people stuff. <laughs> that sounds like a joke. That's swimming lessons. And I went and watched, and it is legitimately speech therapy in a pool. So she goes to the Home of the Innocents. And the Home of the Innocents has a pool designed for people like Anna to thrive. And so the water is salt water set at 92 degrees, so they're not cold. And it's not real distracting around the pool. And there are things that look like toys, but they're really devices to, to help people's body move in physical therapy. Or they are things to label and name like fish and cat and other things like that. And I'm watching this speech therapist work with my daughter where... Anna, you've caught on. She has the attention span of something without an attention span. And so she's having her walk on this piece of foam on the bottom of the pool, making different consonants and vowels and different sounds as she walks. And Anna will do this differently than she'll do just sitting in a chair. So she's working on the word Ohio. I don't know why it's so important to know that state. But for about five minutes, they worked on Ohio. And if you sit on in a chair, she cannot say Ohio. But if you walk her on a foam mat in a 92-degree pool, she can say Ohio. And the hope is that someday when she's in a chair, she can say Ohio. But if she doesn't have that pool, she'll never do it. And I'm like, how did they figure that out? Who's the one who dropped foam in a pool and said, this might work? But people saw people like Anna with dignity and said, you know what, she's worth it. Let's figure out whatever, it a piece of foam, some warm water, some salt, whatever we need for her to thrive at the best that she can be, let's do it. Let's leverage it. And people donated and people got behind it and money came around and all this stuff happened so that there's now a place in town where people like Anna can thrive. I'm grateful because my daughter's learning words. She knows some states now. She's learning some consonants and vowels, and she's not constantly threatened or, or feeling uh, just insecure or things like that. And she's in spaces where people see her as super valuable, whether she can say Ohio or not. It's incredible to watch. And as I'm watching it, I'm thinking of the Ten Commandments because I'm weird. And, but I'm sitting here thinking about the Ten Commandments because that's what this is. This was God saying, hey, people, I've gathered you as a society now. Let me set for you the environment for you to thrive. This is your 92-degree pool with salt water and all the resources you need to be a community that thrives together. Here's what you need. So the first three commandments, which we've already done, are about our relationship with God. Right? And if you haven't heard them, listen back. Uh, especially last week, there was just some incredible stuff about what the verse isn't and what the commandment is. And then the last six commandments 
are all about how we relate to one another. And I think it's fascinating that there are six on that. If we're going to be a society that honors God, we've got to be intentional in how we relate to one another. But in between those two sets is a commandment that really is about how we handle time. That's what it's about. It's about Sabbath. Yes, I'm thrilled to have this one because it is one of my favorite topics. But it's, it's not so much about rest as it is this, this rhythm of work and rest and how we view and handle time. Here's where we find it. In Exodus 20, uh, let's look at 8 through 10 first. It says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. And so God says here, work, but don't only work. And Sabbath, but don't, don't only Sabbath. This is about time and lordship over your time and who you are as you go through time. Okay, well, I'm going to try to explain what this means. Here, here's this, this author, Wayne Muller. Hey, buddy. This author, Wayne Muller says this about Sabbath. He says that Sabbath is a way of being in time where we remember who we are, we remember what we know, and we taste the gifts of spirit and eternity. It's a way of being in time where we remember who we are, where we remember what we know, and we taste the gifts of spirit and eternity. And part of our job, as, so this is a collective command, right? We read it individually. It's about me and my Sabbath. No, this is a collective. As a society, we're to Sabbath. So that means not only do we remember who we are, remember what we know and taste the gifts of spirit and eternity, but we ensure that the person next to us does the same thing and has the ability to do the same thing. Does that make some sense? So as we work, here's what's beautiful with how God handles time. As we work, whatever we do, it lasts. Amen. Whatever we do, it lasts. When we are found in the kingdom of God, Jesus said the kingdom of God is now. The kingdom of heaven is now. It's here. Wow. And so all that we do now lasts for eternity. So when we go and do our work, we are now working on things that have meaning. Now, does that mean that we're going to have the Kentucky... Derby Festival in, in heaven, and we're going to eat pork chops in heaven, and all these kinds of things. I, I don't know all of these answers, but I do know that Scripture is clear that the work that we do now lasts. That, that how we spend our days matters. But then, our Sabbath, it's more than sleep, and it's more than relaxation. It's remembering and living Expectantly, You know that we're using Dr. James Bruckner's words for each of these uh, commandments. For the fourth commandment, he says that the Sabbath protects against bondage to taskmasters. And this is real important. It protects against bondage. Uh, there, there's another professor in the, in the covenant who says that this is the greatest uh, workers' rights movement ever was this Sabbath. 
to just require a rest. It's like when a overtime policies happen and stuff like that. But as I've talked about Sabbath for the last couple of years, I realized most people feel uninvited into it. Most people, and I've heard this from you guys. I've heard like, Matt, that's great that you Sabbath. That's great that you can do that. That's because you're a pastor or that's because something else. The assumption is that I can Sabbath, but, but you can't. I'm invited into it, but, but you aren't. And a lot of times, I think, I think that is what our culture tells us. Whether you're white or black, young or old, any of that, you feel like you are outside of this invitation. Our culture says that there is no rest for you. It says this. So, a couple weeks ago, Nikki and I went to, to Hamilton. I know a few of you saw Hamilton. That was just my, that, there's no story attached to it. I just wanted you to know. No. But no, we, we, we got to go. And it was, I was jealous of everyone else who had gone. And I was like, okay, let's go before you go out of town and let's go. It was incredible. And so then, like too many other goofy people, I've been listening as, as I go through the last week, right? But there's this theme in the play that's like really important in the play that totally matches our culture. But as you're reading Sabbath, it doesn't match Sabbath. And this thing over Hamilton keeps getting spoken that he's writing like he's running out of time. And he's living like he's running out of time. And he never like lets off the gas pedal. And it's kind of what we love about the character is that he's going to say what he's going to say, and he's going to write, and he's going to write way more than anybody else, and he's going to make a difference really, really quick because he's running out of time. And I think we, we just know that time is valuable, that time really matters. And I think a lot of us love this character, Hamilton, because... Well, he, he, he was running out of time, and we identify with that. We feel like that. If we have a kid, we know how many days or months or years before they're out of high school, and most of us feel really nervous about that. Some of us really celebrate that, and, and, and uh, we, we feel like we're behind in everything. So there's this, this author, James Mark Comer, who says, Time is a precious commodity. But for those whose lives are in Jesus, we are filthy rich. Time is a pre- You are not wrong to think time is a precious commodity. Our culture is not wrong to tell us time is a precious commodity. But if we do now, if what we do now matters for eternity, then those of us who are found in Christ Jesus, we are filthy rich. Because our God is the Alpha and Omega. He invented time. He is for all time. And we will reign with him for all time. So there's this idea that, that there's no rest for us because of this rush in time, right? There's also, I, I don't know if you know this, I really like mythology. I think it's fascinating. And I have some books on Norse mythology because I'm Norwegian. And... Uh, there's a character in, in the Marvel movies, if you've seen them. There are these Norse uh, warriors, and I don't speak Norwegian. It's like Einharjar, something like that is what they're called. Einharjar. 
But this is fascinating. So they are people who lived on earth. The, the myth goes, they are people who live on earth who chose to be warriors and died as a warrior. And this was like the most noble role you could have. The, these characters are who they are in the movie. And uh, you die as a warrior. But then this is what's spoken over you as you go to eternity. As a blessing, go figure. There is no rest for the warrior. And you're supposed to receive that like, yes! Because I just died in battle, so I'm so glad that I never get to rest. And the myth goes that every day for eternity, they fight each other. They are the best warriors, so they fight each other, cut each other up all day, every day. At night, have one meal, go to sleep, and the next day do the same thing. And that is the biggest goal you can have in this mythology. If only I can be that person with no rest. But I think that's in our culture. I think we make heroes of that person too. Listen to how we talk to one another. How are you? I'm super busy. I can't stop working. Man, I'm just getting, this is what's noble and cool is I just, I, I, I just, I've worked so hard and I've sacrificed so much and tomorrow I'm going to wake up and do the same thing. And there's a brick on my gas pedal and I'm falling into the lake and then tomorrow I'm going to fall in the lake again. And like this is just life. And that's what life requires of me. And I, I would say our culture does require that of us, but our God does not. Our God does not. There's this Protestant work ethic that you all know about. That you're not supposed to spend much money, you're supposed to be ornery, but work really hard. And this is what just nobly passed all over the place. This is what I was taught. My dad actually said a couple times, don't work smarter, work harder. And I was like, that seems counter to everything. <laughs> but this is what is celebrated. But then here, there, there becomes this more, even more evil message that happens. That if you start doing well, if you start succeeding in managing your time by working too much, or risking everything for everything, and you get ahead of somebody else, then you need to keep them behind for their own good. And this is really in our thinking, guys. So I was just at a conference at Ohio State where they studied multiracial churches and their leaders. And they found out when it comes to funding for multiracial churches, like ourselves, that, that particularly majority church leaders, white church leaders, in a predominantly white church, we'll see that there's a need for money in a multiracial church. And this is Ohio State. This is research. This is not like a pastor crying at people. But they found that the majority culture white church churches will say, I know you don't have resources, but that keeps you dependent on God. So what a beautiful story. So we're going to keep you dependent on God. Which also means we're not going to give any resources. That's what that means. And they leave that meeting or that coffee and say, like, it was so great to hear how that church is struggling for the Lord and depending on the Lord and how the Lord constantly provides. I'm going to turn in my receipt. And this is in church culture. This is in our culture at large. 
the person who is below is gaining something by working really, really hard. And those of us above, we don't want to rob them of that lesson <laughs> by extending mercy or grace or kindness or anything like that. Dr. Martin Luther King said this, Now I believe we ought to do all we can and ask to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps, but it is a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. Culturally, this is what we do. This is the culture I was born into. I've told you before that I grew up thinking I was poor and we bought a company. Those two sentences don't go together. But that's the narrative we thought. And my parents did work hard. They did. I love them for it. And they taught me to work hard. But they also birthed me into a culture that is opposite of the culture that God invited me into. So our counter message oftentimes to the message of our culture is I want to go from being the oppressed to be the oppressor. I'll be better at it. I want to go from being the worker to being the boss. I'll be better at it than the person before me. But it's the same game. We play the game this exact same way. And I want to let you know that God has another way for us to play it. So again, we usually look at these commandments individually, right? And I think the Sabbath we need to look at individually. But in this context, we are looking at, as a society, what does it mean to Sabbath today, right? So if you're interested in what it means individually, our small groups are going to look at it. If you're a small group leader, I've uploaded a guide for you this week. Uh, I can email it to you if you want. Um, and next Saturday, if any of you are free, from 9 to 1, my friends Eric Whitney and I, you, can you guys wave? We're meeting over at their house, and we're going to practice together a half a day Sabbath. We're going to have some exercise. We're going to learn what it looks like. If you are free next Saturday from 9 to 1, talk to Eric or Whitney or talk to me. I'm going to send an email out today. Go ahead and sign up on that. Uh, it's free. We'd love to have you. Um, it's not going to be intimidating. We're just going to learn what it looks like together, okay? That's the individual part. Now we're just going to go to, as a group, what does this mean? Because I think this is what's critical. A look at verse 10 and 11 of chapter 20. Okay, 8 through 11. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. Now catch this. You, your son or your daughter, your male or female slaves, your livestock, the alien resident in your towns, for in six days the Lord made the heaven and the earth, the seas, and all that is in them, but rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Now, this fourth commandment is not so much about how to do it. We see other places how to Sabbath. The fourth commandment is who does it. And the answer is absolutely everybody gets invited into the Sabbath. Even your dog. Even your horse. Even your cow. Even the Lewis's chickens. Like everything. Everyone is invited into this. And the thing that I'll argue is that it is not a Sabbath if everyone is not invited. 
if we are not inviting everybody to work and to rest and to notice time in the way that God notices time and celebrate time in the way that God celebrates time, then we are not experiencing the Sabbath the way that God invited us to. We're to create a Sabbath where everyone works and everyone rests in the Lord. Now, there's something really interesting. In this, in this passage here, we see in Exodus, they use creation, right? This is the first generation coming out of Egypt. They use creation as the reason for the Sabbath. Use Sabbath because God made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything, and rested on the Sabbath. So, so you get to rest. And he's saying this to the generation that left Egypt, saying this to the generation that only built bricks, that they had no clue what the bricks were for. It was the most meaningless work ever, and they were convinced that this is who they were. And then what's happening here is God reminds them, hey, I made you. And since the beginning, this is what you were made and designed for, work, but then rest. This rat race isn't what God created. It isn't how we have to live. Now, some of us are like, well, yeah, this is what I've always done. Okay, then, then I don't mean this sarcastically. Actually, listen to yourself. Maybe it's working for you. But my guess is if you listen to yourself, you're saying, I'm exhausted constantly. I don't know if this is worth it. I, I'm tired. I'm worn out. I'm, I'm this. I'm that. Okay. If that's still what we're producing then maybe let's look at time differently. Then maybe let's try it a different way. Okay, but we get a second set of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you know this. I don't know if we've said it real clear. But we get the first set to the first generation, and then they all die in the wilderness because they really want Egypt, and they're confused and all this kind of stuff. They all die. Next generation is the one that inherits the promised land. In the second set, in Deuteronomy, it's not creation that's the reason. It's the exodus. The freedom. So the second set, God says, hey, remember, you used to be all bound up in meaningless stuff. Your parents were bound up in meaningless work, exhausted. That's not what I have for you. I have this freedom for you. It's no longer bondage. It's no longer who you are. And it's for your entire household. And it is for the foreigners who are among you. Okay, so it's, it's 4th of July week. I'm reading the news all week and seeing like a couple people get excited about the 4th of July. And there's like two very different messages that are at least hitting, hitting my world. There's a like, we should be excited about our freedoms and this is great. And then there's what's happening at like the southern border. And there's threats against Iran and all this kind of, and they're just running as if they're parallel, as if they're not colliding messages. And I'm thinking of the Sabbath, and I don't get to experience the full blessing of the Sabbath unless everyone gets to experience the full blessing. And I'm selfish. I want to experience that. So that means that everybody experiences that. And that means we have hard conversations, and we look at difficult things, like, like employment. Right? If everybody needs to be able to work, then everyone needs to have opportunity for work. 
So that means we should care very much about employment, or at least how people spend their days. Maybe some people are in a situation where they need to be unemployed. Then we have like volunteerism or things like that where people can find meaning through their day. They can be given dignity through their day. And it made me think of about a month ago, I went to a end the cash bail rally downtown. And I went, I didn't even tell you all about it because I'm really green at this and I'm just kind of learning. I went as Matt, I didn't go as a pastor and I just went like, I want to go experience this. My understanding, this cash bail thing is kind of weird. And so I went to this rally and I was like, oh, all these people can't work because they're waiting in jail until their trial and they're losing their apartment and their, or their home and their job and their, all of this is lost throughout the day because... We want $500, or we want $2,000. That seems weird. And this is, I'm not talking politics right now. I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm not partisan. I'm talking about our city, our neighbors, our brothers and our sisters. $38 million a day is what we're spending to keep people in the bail system. This is not the prison system. This is not guilty people. This is people who don't have access to enough money for bail. This is, honestly, if I didn't have y'all, this is me if I do something stupid and I can't call you and get help. <laughs> Zoe gets it. <laughs> this is a big deal. And this is about the dignity of our brothers and our sisters, our neighborhood. How do we offer work? And then how do we offer rest? It's hot outside. For people who are outside, how do they rest? Maybe we need to start, we've talked about it, maybe we need to start playing cards in here, turning the air conditioner on, having some bottles of water, just offering real simple ways of doing some things. I mentioned a couple minutes ago, but this, the southern border, I'm convinced this is something that our kids will remind us of. This is something that, like, the history books will write about how we handled people. And I'm not saying anything about immigration right now. I have opinions. We can get coffee, and I'll tell you my opinions. But I'm not talking about immigration. What I'm talking about is separating families. What I'm talking about is kids who are sick and scared and piled up in places that we wouldn't put our animals. And I'm talking about the way that we are talking about people as if they are animals. But not even in a kingdom way of understanding animals. Because the kingdom says if it's your livestock, it gets the Sabbath. So we're not even talking in a kingdom understanding of a horse or a cow. We're talking in a totally other way because they weren't born here. We get to just do whatever. My daughter, who we love and build pools for so she can learn to say Ohio, was not born here. She was born in one of the very countries... She was born in Guatemala, and when I watch the news and when I hear things and I read stories, some of these people are coming from Guatemala, and I get why they're leaving. I've been to Guatemala. It is beautiful. It is rough. And because of who my daughter's father and mother are, we'll, we'll build her pools and we'll teach her everything that we can and we'll care for her as best we can that she can fully thrive. But I'm telling you, that the people who are coming to the southern border, we know who their father is. 
that his father is a whole lot more meaningful than Anna's earthly dad. And it's time that we treat them and see them like their father. I'm not talking policy. I'm not talking partisan. I'm just talking human dignity. If you need $38 million a day to pay for it, then end cash bail and kick it over that way. That would work. We just solved two problems. Let's go get coffee. But it's not about getting smarter. Let's do something. I'm going to say, if, if you're on our email list, this isn't spam. I am going to send you something today. If you're not on it, give us your email address. I'll send it to you. I'm going to send you some things in case you don't know about the southern border. Well, no guilt, no shame. I'm going to send you a couple articles that I read this week. And then we need to be praying for our sisters and our brothers. But there's something else that we don't always do as a church yet. Let's start letting our voice be heard. Let's start talking about these things. So here's the number to call. Take a picture of that screen or write it down for me, please. Go ahead and pull your phone out. That's the number to call. What's going to happen when you call that number is you're going to get, it, it is, you're calling Washington, D.C. And they're going to say, who do you want to talk to? And go ahead and give your zip code. And you're going to get your congressman's number. And of course, it's going to go to an answering machine. And you go ahead and let it go to the answering machine. And I will even email you something that you can almost use as a script. But you say whatever you need to say. But I've called this and just said like, hey, I'm one of your constituents. And I'm concerned. What I said was... Fourth of July is coming, and we're celebrating freedom, and we've got people in cages, and that doesn't make any sense to me. And I don't know how I celebrate without closing my eyes, and I don't want to close my eyes. So please do something about this. I trust you want to. And if enough of us are doing this, we've got to believe that things change. Does that make some sense? Because this Sabbath, we can go practice it on our own, and what we get is a lovely story about us taking 24 hours and experiencing some joy and experiencing the presence of God. And it is real, but it is not the fullness that God has for us. The fullness is when we all invite everybody and free everybody to be able to work with dignity and rest with dignity in seeing time as God's time. And then we'll experience something completely other. So this is what we're working towards a little bit. Now, I see some of your eyes are like, I'm already tired. And then you're giving me more work to do. I get it. So next Saturday, 9 to 1, join us. We'll talk about, like, I am way less tired when I started to individually learn how to Sabbath. I feel way healthier when I learn to start taking time to rest from work, and then enjoy work. But let me give you two other things real quick that will hopefully give you some hope in this. You know the first time that Sabbath comes up? So Genesis 1, we see that God rested, but it's not called Sabbath. The first time that Sabbath actually comes up is to a bunch of hungry, displaced people. They're lost. They're tired. They're hungry. Look at the passage with me, Exodus 16. The whole, they're ornery too. 
the whole congregation of Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. Think on that. It was better to be slaves. When we sat by the flesh pots and ate our fill of bread, for you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with heaven. They're, they're bickering at Moses and Aaron. But it's, I think they're really feeling it. I don't think they're just complaining. Like, this is what life feels like. But what God has for them is so other. And God doesn't strike them down, and he's not mean to them. Look at how God responds in this next verse here. Then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for the day. And in, in that way I'll test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. On the sixth, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on the other days. And in this chapter, Sabbath is introduced. In a chapter where God is providing exactly what they need within arm's reach. It's not like he's saying somewhere out there is some bread. Go hustle. Go find you some. He's not saying wear yourselves out. Prove yourself to me. He's saying, no, let me again prove myself to you. But know that on the sixth day, you need to grab twice as much. Because on the seventh, I want you to sleep in. I want you to rest. I want you to experience a bit of heaven. I want you to be reminded of who I am. That is what Sabbath is about. There's this verse in Psalms that I love, and I really believe that this is what we will experience when we learn to view time as God does, when we believe that it is something that we are filthy rich with. And we start to look out for our sisters and our brothers. We see in Psalm 27, I am confident that I will see the Lord's goodness while I am here in the land of the living. Now, here's the thing. We will not see it if we're running too fast to see. And we will not see it if we're so tired we cannot keep our eyes open. We will see it when we do our work and we do it to the best of our ability. But then we learn to rest and trust that God keeps the world spinning while we just enjoy his presence. Does that make some sense? This is what the Sabbath invitation is. And so we have a couple people who are going to pray with you. And, and here's specifically what I want to invite uh, you into. Maybe you are somebody who doesn't identify with people who are children of God. Maybe you're somebody who's like, I've heard that before, but I, I don't know if God's my father. I don't know if Jesus is, really has died for me, but I, I, I want that. And if, if that's you, I want to invite you, uh, Jamel and Kat and Joshua will be praying. They'll be available to pray for you and with you. And uh, I want to invite you to come receive prayer in that way. There's some of you who are exhausted. And let me tell you, you should be. The load that you carry is heavy. This isn't said with shame. And you are doing exactly what our culture has told you to do. We make heroes of those who never rest. But God's invitation is very other. 
And so there is something called being the Sabbath for somebody. And as they pray with you, they will be that Sabbath moment for you, asking God to meet you in that space, to refresh you. But then I want to encourage you, after you receive prayer, make some pivots in your life. Maybe you can't set aside a whole day. Set aside a morning or set aside an evening where you learn what that looks like to rest in the Lord, to experience his fullness. There are some of you who are like, okay, I've got to do something to make sure my sisters and my brothers get a shot at this too. And if that's you, I, I want to, actually, I'm going to single someone out. Martin, can you help me out? Can you stand up by that booth back there? 